Crypto Theses for 2022, key trends, people, companies, and projects to watch across the crypto landscape with predictions for 2022. Ho, ho, ho. I'll keep this brief since the rest of the report is not. The thesis started as a tweet thread four years ago on New Year's Day. Along with the rest of the crypto industry, the report has exploded in size and complexity each year since. I write it for our team to highlight the amazing work they've done throughout the year and to synthesize the crypto chaos for any new hires. I read it for myself to organize my monkey mind and create a mental model for crypto and an index of the best available research. And, of course, I write for you. Whether you're a crypto novice or a multi-cycle veteran, I try to deliver a free, comprehensive 201-level crypto course with 101-level intros and links as an annual holiday gift to those who will find it helpful. In return, you get to yell at me for my typos, Thanks. Miss summarizing your favorite coins. Do better marketing. Omitting the 246 ranked asset by market cap. I'm not a short seller. And copy pastaing other people's ideas throughout. Good artist copy, great artist steal. A couple disclaimers before you dive in. Number one, the alpha in this report is free, and many have gleaned insights from past reports that help them make money, but nothing herein is investment advice. Be an adult. Number two, I stand on the shoulders of giants. In certain chapters, I borrow liberally from other authors who have already delivered amazing insight on a given topic. Nick Carter and Lynn Alden in the Bitcoin section, Punk6529 and Ben Yu in the NFT section, Watkins and Wilson and Mason and Roberto et al. in the DeFi, ETH and Friends and DAO sections, by Legie and Chris Dixon throughout. By reading on, you accept my terms of service, which includes the provision that any accidental plagiarism of the above-cited authors is unintentional and will be corrected ex post facto. Do you want a free report, or do you want MLA-level standards and the boredom that comes with mind-numbing citation? Number three, this beast took me 250 hours to write, 8 to 10% of my annual bandwidth. Every year, I secretly root for it to flop to spare me from the temptation of writing another one. If you like the report, you can thank the Masari team for running the business in my absence last month. They accept thank yous in the form of followers and pro subscriptions. I accept thank yous in the form of five to six figure enterprise subs and hub memberships. Number four, I own assets discussed in this report. My core holdings are disclosed at the end of chapter one, along with those of the rest of the Masari team. And any angel... Number four, I own assets discussed in this report. My core holdings are disclosed at the end of Chapter 1, along with those of the rest of the Masari team. And any angel or liquid investments I have made to date are marked with an asterisk. No conflicts, no interest. This report caps an epic year for crypto and for Masari. In 2021, we grew the size of our team 4x and revenues 8x. We raised a Series A and launched a killer new product every quarter. Intel in Q1, our Analyst Hub in Q2, Mainnet in Q3, and some new tools for DAOs that we'll be unveiling next week. Next year will be even bigger. We're hiring, a lot. And we pay 10,000 per engineering referral if you know any good ones, or if you're one yourself. We're also doing something fun this year, and auctioning off a bunch of theses-related NFTs for charity. Our Heroes Collection includes artwork for the top people to watch this year. They'll get a special personal edition of the art as a keepsake, but the remainder are one-of-one one NFTs that we're auctioning through our partner OpenSea. Commissioner Pierce's NFT looks particularly rare. We also have a series of battle scenes in the collection that are pure fire. Thanks to JN for the inspiring work and inspiration. 
This is an NFT test run for us, and we'll have more to come. You might want to buy an annual pro subscription to keep up with 2022 developments. Just saying. As always, I am humbled you would consider reading this report and appreciate... Oh, who am I kidding? This report is fucking incredible. And like Kanye at one of his concerts, I'm jealous you get to read it with fresh eyes because I'm honestly sick at looking at it. Happy holidays, prospero año y felicidad, and as always, wear a helmet. Kidding, kinda. Section 1, Top 10 Narratives and Investment Themes. 1.1, The Collapse in Institutional Trust. Why are you reading this? Maybe you're among the nearly half of millennials and Gen X investors who said it would take a miracle to retire. You're worried about skyrocketing public debt, not-so-transitory inflation, and what happens when we finally experience a hike in interest rates. For you, crypto is a life raft. Maybe you're one of the 70% of Americans who disapprove of Congress and no longer trust policymakers to do the right thing given that they spend recklessly and insider trade with impunity. You're looking for an alternative to central planners in D.C. and Beijing. For you, crypto is an exit vote. Maybe you're a populist, from the right or the left, that seethes knowing Wall Street faced no repercussions for fueling the last financial crisis and tends to profit from federal policies that punish their customers. Or you're worried about big tech's monopoly power, censorship, and control over your personal data. For you, crypto is a shot across their bows. Of course, you could just be into crypto for the fast money, memes, and JPEGs. That's cool too. Whether you're here as a missionary or a mercenary, you'll find that one of the primary unifying forces behind this movement is the belief that decentralized technologies with embedded financial incentives, a good shorthand for Web3, offer a compelling, often lucrative, alternative to our decaying legacy institutions. That brings me to my first prediction for 2022. Things will get worse before they get better in the real world. Inflation will remain above 5% throughout 2022, 70% confidence, while late-year interest rate hikes stall the stock market's momentum and hurt growth stocks, 60% confidence the S&P dips next year. That will be good for crypto short-term, but risky in the medium-term as more crypto companies and their users get deplatformed and censorship from Western tech and banking platforms accelerates amidst the Biden administration's crypto crackdown. Section 1.2 Crypto Web 3 is inevitable. That's one of the only bearish predictions in this report. Crypto, or the recently en vogue Web 3, is an unstoppable force long term. Chris Dixon calls it the internet owned by the builders and users, orchestrated with tokens. Ashita describes the Web 1 to Web 2 to Web 3 evolution as read only, read write, to read write own. Regardless of your preferred shorthand, it might seem intuitive that the user-owned economy will outperform the monopolist-owned economy in the long term. There's a lot to unpack over the course of this report, but the general theme is consistent. We're going from an internet built on rented land with monopoly overlords to an infinite frontier of new possibilities. On the frontier, crypto presents a credible revolution to all monopolies which is why its inevitability scares the incumbents. We have all the ingredients we need to succeed. We have talent. Brilliant, passionate, big-visioned young builders are flocking to the open design space of crypto in record numbers, often on their nights and weekends. We have capital. We've seen mammoth venture capital fundraises, crypto startup fundraises, and staggering growth in emerging liquid protocols across Web3 use cases. And last, we have timing. Critical infrastructure was installed during the last bear market that made it easier than ever, both socially and practically, to embrace this techno-political movement. 
In a recent post from Eric Peters at One River Capital, he argued that we live in a period of social upheaval, where young people are keen to invest in technologies that disrupt and potentially bankrupt older generations' preferred institutions, while pushing investments that benefit themselves at the expense of the old guard. The best part about being young and broke, he says, is that you have little to lose. That's especially true when younger people view legacy institutions as exploitative. DeFi offers savers 5% versus Wall Street's 0.5%. Non-fungible tokens or NFTs give creators monetization opportunities without Hollywood's 50% plus rents. Open games and social graphs remove the 100% take rate from tech incumbents and eliminate deplatforming risks. I have 99% conviction that crypto will be an order of magnitude larger by 2030 because the user economics here are an order of magnitude more attractive. We're at the brink of a total transformation of the global economy, one that's bigger than mobile and maybe even the internet itself. Though I waffle on where we are in this particular cycle, the tailwinds remain strong and the capital markets flush, so my probabilities are split among three scenarios. One, most likely we experience a blow-off top before the end of Q1 2021, followed by a shallower but still painful multi-year bear market. Two, we rocket to $20 trillion bubble that lasts all year and sits on par with the dot-com boom in real dollars. Unlikely, but possible given accommodative monetary policies worldwide, never-ending government spending, and crypto's accelerating narrative momentum. Number three, we march slowly and steadily higher into perpetuity, the supercycle thesis. Ironically, the most bearish case here, Q1 blow-off top, may be the most bullish long-term and vice versa. Hyper-Bitcoinization and crypto's permanent ascendance at this stage of our development would only happen against a very dystopian backdrop indeed. 1.3. Bridges and Nifties and DAOs. Web3 is a good, all-encompassing term that captures cryptocurrencies, those being digital gold and stablecoins, smart contract computing, those being Layer 1 and Layer 2 platforms, decentralized hardware infrastructure, video, storage, sensors, etc., non-fungible tokens, digital ID and property rights, DeFi, financial services to swap and collateralize Web3 assets, the metaverse, the digital commons built in game-like environments, and community governance, DAOs, or decentralized autonomous organizations. I expect growth everywhere across Web3, though three areas are particularly underdeveloped, NFT infrastructure, DAO tooling, and inter-protocol bridges. We're witnessing a Cambrian explosion of innovation within the NFT space that is just getting started. I'm not sure how much longer the market for individual NFTs can bubble up, but I do know that reliable and ubiquitous NFT tooling is largely missing. Marketplaces, financialization primitives, creator tools, community-oriented business models, and decentralized identity management slash reputation management systems are all in their infancy. That core infrastructure will be one of the hottest areas of investment in 2022. Same goes for DAO tooling, which is an existential need right now across crypto communities where voter apathy is reaching crisis levels and investments are taking far too long to process. If you take the 10-year view that open, token-governed marketplaces will replace companies as I do and recognize that their communities will need 100x improvements in collaboration tools in order to operate more efficiently than centralized competitors, and understand that every DAO treasury transaction is essentially subject to a board-level proxy vote today, 
then you can appreciate why 2022 will be the year of Dow tools. I've bet on it both in my personal portfolio and via Masari's bet the company move to build an operating system for Web3 participation. Last but not least, we have the core crypto plumbing, scaling and interoperability solutions. Ethereum's blockchain hit its capacity this year. Other layer one platforms have exploded 50 to 100x in value as investors bet on crypto development to parallelize across new ecosystems and absorb the excess demand. All of these new blockchains, plus Ethereum's Layer 2 rollups, will need to talk to each other, so the most acute pain point in crypto today may be the lack of bridges. If the future is multi-chain, then those who build better cross-chain connectors and help move assets fluidly across parachains, zones, and rollups will inherit the virtual Earth. If these all sound like foreign concepts, that's okay. NFTs, DAOs, and Layer 1 interoperability make up a third of this year's report for a reason. Section 1.4, the decoupling of cryptos. Different crypto sectors have different value drivers. We've gone from everything is a cryptocurrency to actually there's currencies, FAT protocols, DeFi apps, distributed computing platforms, NFTs, work-to-earn market. Discerning investors increasingly look at the actual usage and underlying microeconomics of various networks and trade around their unique growth drivers. It's still a meme-driven market, but many of the memes are reflecting, dare I say, fundamentals? Ari Paul wrote one of the most insightful threads on the recent decoupling of crypto markets, saying, This is the cycle where crypto use cases unrelated to Bitcoins were finally validated and achieved meaningful adoption. In previous cycles, it made little sense to be a sector specialist in crypto. DeFi and NFTs were basically non-existent four years ago. Most other sectors didn't meaningfully exist as such. Decentralized file storage, smart contract platforms, privacy, and other sectors by which crypto coins were often segmented were both arbitrary and arguably nonsensical. Now, being a DeFi yield farmer or NFT speculator is arguably a full-time job, and you need or will soon need a small team just to keep up with one of those segments. That's an important development, and it's where private investment funds will have such a huge ongoing competitive advantage versus their generalist competitors. There are massive information asymmetries in protocol reporting standards and steep technical learning curve and limited risk management infrastructure. How do incumbents get compliance, legal, and accounting comfortable with some of these new structures that keep barriers to crypto investing high? Crypto funds are having the time of their lives right now, a dynamic that will likely continue well into the new year. 1.5. Permanent venture capital. In, up, and down. Never out. The amount of capital that has flooded into crypto this year is mind-boggling. The dedicated crypto funds have seen record new capital raises and record assets under management from the appreciation of their core holdings. Some of the funds, looking at you, Multicoin, are likely among the best-performing investment firms of all time, which makes it easy to see why Groups has had no trouble continuing to rake in cash. It's tough to comprehend the size of the private crypto fund market right now. When we raised $25 million for DCG in 2015, it was one of the biggest rounds in a crypto investment firm at that time. Today, firms like Polychain, Paradigm, A16Z, Multicoin, 3AZ, and others are each managing billions of dollars, in some cases tens of billions of dollars or more, and investing $25 million a clip in their medium-sized deals. Hedge funds plan to deploy 7% of their assets into crypto within five years, and pensions are starting to buy direct too. Large capital allocators are continuing to move up the risk curve, 
amidst a negative interest rate backdrop and most simply cannot afford to ignore crypto anymore. Crypto's $3 trillion Crypto's $3 trillion of liquid value creation in 10 years now rivals that of all other venture-backed startups combined. Institutional entrants have taken note, and it's likely they'll deploy capital in a way that could ensure we avoid crashes of similar depth and length to 2014-15 and 2018-19. When newcomers enter the space, that money tends to flow in two directions, in and down, not out. Capital may trickle down to higher beta, emerging tokens, but when it cycles back up, it often doesn't cycle out, except for taxes. Instead, it stops at Bitcoin, Ether, or Sol, or the crypto blue chips. If you'd prefer to stay away from direct exposure to tokens, that's okay. The need for token infrastructure has created a boom in crypto unicorns, which offers hedged exposure to the underlying asset class. According to Dovemetrics, we saw $8 billion of private investments across 423 deals in Q3. Nearly half of the $17.8 billion invested since the start of the year, which was already more than the previous six years combined. Nearly 90% of the largest deals in crypto's history have happened this year, and that's excluding the Coinbase direct listing. About 75% of the funding was deployed into infrastructure and centralized services, and that was before the FTX and DCG announcements and potentially imminent Binance funding announcement. The institutions are actually here this time. 1.6. How high can we fly? The crash, which we all know is coming, might be more muted than those of prior cycles. But how about the remaining upside? Even with the tailwinds we just discussed, doesn't it feel a little bit toppy? The $30 billion Shiba Inu market caps, the Times Square NFT billboards. I'll tell you which top signals I'm looking for starting with Bitcoin. Number one, Bitcoin. The king has no real rival. I'll elaborate why in chapter three. As a monetary asset with no earnings, it's an asset that is priced versus valued, which means it's almost always judged on a relative basis to its analog cousin, gold. But there are fundamentals worth tracking for Bitcoin, too. The best bogey may be the market value to realize value metric popularized by coin metrics. That's a ratio of free float Bitcoin market cap, coins that have moved in the past five years, to realize value, which sums the market price of each Bitcoin according to the time it last moved on chain. Market cap can stay the same while realized market cap spikes and vice versa. One is a snapshot of Bitcoin's stock time price. The other is a dynamic measure that brings flow into the equation as well. If you aren't a hodler and can't stomach four-year bear markets, then whenever MVRV hits three, tends to be a good time to take gains. Sell a kidney or a newborn to buy when MVRV falls below one. In the three previous double bubbles, which you can really only see using a metric like MVRV since previous bubbles barely register on the price chart, the amount of time spent above three has gotten progressively shorter. In 2011, MVRV stayed above three for four months. In 2013, it was there for 10 weeks. In 2017, three weeks. Earlier this year, it was three days. If history were to repeat itself, what's that mean in dollar terms? Hitting an MVRV of three again this year would take us to the 100K, 125K range. Not bad. If things went completely bonkers beyond that, the next target for Bitcoin would be the gold market cap. At today's prices, parity with gold would bring us a 500k Bitcoin. So there may still be a 10x investment opportunity there. But even that moon case offers a relatively low ceiling compared to Bitcoin's historical returns, unless of course the ceiling completely disappears, which means fiat currencies have failed and we've defaulted to pricing things in Bitcoin, 
one Bitcoin equaling one Bitcoin. Number two, Ethereum. There's been a lot of flippening talk from ETH megabulls recently. Could ETH overtake Bitcoin this cycle? Unlikely. Not with Ethereum's persistent scaling challenges and its layer one competitors and the willingness of infrastructure companies and application builders alike to embrace the likelihood of a multi-chain future. I continue to think it's more interesting to consider whether layer one platforms collectively flip in Bitcoin in much the same way that the FAMGA market caps have overtaken M1. How about more generally speaking? Could ETH overtake Microsoft, Apple, or Google? That would be a 3 to 5x from here. Could it eclipse all five combined? That would be a 15 to 20x, which feels like a tall order even if ETH at 5% of FAMGA market cap feels cheap. Number three, Solana and others. The new it girl of crypto is gunning for the number three spot in crypto market cap at $60 billion. But then again, so is Polkadot at $40 billion and Avalanche at $30 billion. If the thesis for these alternative layer one protocols is that they are higher beta plays than ETH that will eat into Ethereum's market share dominance, then you're forced to ask, what about Terra at $16 billion, Polygon at $12 billion, Algorand at $11 billion, and Cosmos at $7 billion? The relative value trades all come down to business development wins or app distribution and recruiting wins. Can you attract developers to build on non-Ethereum blockchains? The Ethereum killers all have the money to compete aggressively, but as an investor, your choices are either to pick winners or to buy the basket, short Ethereum layer one dominance. Either way, these assets tether to ETH. Number four, DeFi. Long DeFi, short the bankers. Am I right? Despite DeFi's monstrous 2020 run, DeFi trades at less than 1% of the global bank's market cap, which shows how much upside remains long-term. Prices have stalled for some of the top DeFi protocols, but if you have conviction that crypto capital markets will displace centralized institutions at an accelerating clip, it may offer better risk-reward opportunities than elsewhere in the market today. That said, inter-protocol competition is fierce. Regulatory scrutiny is coming. Technical vulnerabilities are persuasive. Systemic defaults could cripple the entire market, and high gas fees are crippling the unit economics. By many metrics, price to sale and price to earnings, DeFi remains compelling, but the math only works for whales right now. Number five, NFTs. Given the fact that they're non-fungible and illiquid, it can be difficult to ascribe any sort of reliable market cap to the NFT sector. DappRadar estimated NFT market cap at $14 billion in early September, a number that has risen since. Given the design space that NFTs have opened up for the entire crypto user economy, the long-term size and scope of this segment is scary big. Meltem points to LVMH, $375 billion, while Suzu thinks we'll see 10% of crypto, which is $225 billion today in NFT market cap. I don't think they're off, but that may speak more to the opportunity for NFT creators and infrastructure builders than it does to the investability of most specific NFT projects. Number seven, surviving winter. If you couldn't tell by now, we like the coins. We like them for the long term and the short term, but it's the medium term that can get you. From what height do we crash sounds like a nice problem to have, but until you've lived through a crypto winter, you don't actually get it. Many will lose faith and won't be able to stomach the soul-crushing multi-year grind lower that is a crypto winter. Wow, the government might actually regulate this out of existence. 
It's just too early for these products. And of course, I told you this was a bubble will be among the drumbeat of negativity you can expect to hear parroted by critics. In addition to eating big paper or real losses, you'll see people have breakdowns, go bankrupt due to over leverage or poor tax planning, quit otherwise promising projects, turn nasty, depressed, or apathetic, and generally lose sight of the long-term potential of crypto. To make matters worse, the next bear market will be a regulatory nightmare, and we won't have the bull market vibes to help defend ourselves against all of the consumer protection, fraud and abuse, systemic risk, ESG, and illicit activity FUD that our enemies will throw at us. At the same time, the grassroots crypto herd will thin because it's tougher to wage war when you've lost 90% of your savings and need to go find a real job again. Sounds harsh, is harsh, but maybe it won't be quite as bad this time. The first order of business post-crash will be to go back to sections one through six and determine if you still believe those theses are true. Is the centralized world still crumbling? Does Web3 offer an optimistic bet on the future? Are the building blocks of the new frontier, bridges, DAOs, NFTs, still worthy of large investments during the next installation phase? Will it be easier to find fundamentally strong products in the next down cycle? Is there still abundant capital available to fund everything interesting? And do you still believe the high watermarks are attainable in a five to 10 year time span? If you remain confident, put on a helmet, embrace the cold, and take heed of these winter survival tips. Unwind leverage early, cash out tax obligations when incurred, but for the love of God, do not try to time the top. On leverage, this should be self-explanatory. If you are not a professional trader, your leverage is merely a cash transfer to those who are. Crypto is volatile enough. With plenty of remaining upside, you don't need to push your luck here and blow your entire personal balance sheet. On taxes, most people understand that they shouldn't rack up credit card debt to purchase doggy coins, but will also totally look the leverage they take on by not planning in December, sell what they must to cover tax liabilities. If you started January 1, 2021 with 10K, it swells to an actively traded 100K by December 31st and then tanks to 25K January 1, 2022. You owe the government more money than you have. Thanks for playing. On shorts, please do not short. If you're right, you'll likely fail to time the top and blow yourself up. When you lose, everyone will celebrate your demise and dance on your grave while they are getting rich. It will make you sad. Even if you win, no one likes you, and you'll lose long term. I don't make the rules, just here to help. And one more thing for the falling knife catchers who think, wow, this will be great. I can't wait to buy discounted coins in the next bear market. Crypto can always go lower than you think for longer than you think, and it will. Crypto meme trading and reflexivity are a hell of a drug. When the music stops, you'll see the painful withdrawal, and it takes some time to detox. If you're a young team managing a token treasury or a balance sheet for the first time, do what you can to protect yourself and your team from the nuclear fallout of a crash. A lot of teams are being idiots with their treasuries and setting themselves up to fail in their most important job as capital stewards. Don't fuck up the money. If you're an aspiring Web3 employee, it's never a bad idea to work on building indispensable products at foundational companies with big war chests. The get-rich-quick crowd will evaporate, but the next cycle's unicorns will get built during the doldrums of winter. It's amazing how much success in crypto comes down to staying power. We're all going to make it is 
a fun bull market meme, but it's much more important to be able to scream, we'll survive when everyone is laughing at you, the market is down 80%, competitors are going bankrupt, and the customers are cold. Ask recruiters about their company's runway and cash on hand before you sign. Most should be pretty well off at this point. The time to go all in with crypto on your balance sheet was last year. I'd be more cautious here. 10 year and 10 hour thinking only. 1.8. Public options. Coinbase opens the floodgates. Will coins outperform the companies that support them? As impressive as Coinbase's rise to $70 billion has been, it has barely kept pace with Bitcoin as an investment since the company's Series B in 2013. They're not alone. Other crypto infrastructure blue chips have also struggled to keep pace with the underlying public assets. In Bitcoin terms, Decacorn investment firm Digital Currency Group is a veritable crypto capital incinerating machine, down 80% in Bitcoin terms since 2015. The numbers get even uglier if you compare companies to layer one tokens like ETH. On the other hand, Binance's BNB tokens appreciated to historic heights within four years, in large part because BNB incentivized new users to sign up for the exchange platform in return for a proxy claim on 20% of Binance's earning powers. BNB sits at $90 billion plus in market cap, while the broader company is worth three to four times that. Crypto's IPOs and ETFs may be more important for attracting institutions and strengthening crypto's mainstream narrative than they are for helping retail investors access the returns of the space. Coinbase could be a trillion-dollar company. The Beto ETF was the fastest-ever ETF to amass $1 billion in investor capital. Nice, but those public stocks are like crypto's college diplomas. They may matter to your parents, but not so much to your friends who can access better crypto-native vehicles, including tokenized exchanges and indices instead. The best part about the new public stocks, Coin and Beto, is the free marketing and insight crypto-natives get from their filings. With Coinbase, you can track their non-trading lines to get a good sense for which hosted services are up and coming. SBF likes the free Intel, too. With Beto and the future ETFs, we get top-tier PR collateral with which we can relentlessly slap SEC Chair Gary Gensler in the face and expose him as a fraud. So there are some benefits to having public stonks in addition to tokens. Ooh, baby, I'm just getting warmed up. Read Chapter 4 for more about Goldman Gary and Chapter 5 for more about these unconscionable ETF products. 1.9. Copy trading. We are going to make it. Sometimes you have to not overthink things. Crypto trading tends to be social and mematic. Just look at how quickly retail traders ape into new projects backed by some of the industry's most successful investors. Capital is also highly fluid. Billions of dollars have been made this year pursuing the hot ball of money trades, i.e. chasing momentum as it shifts from sector to sector, asset to asset, and meme to meme. The role of venture in crypto is changing, and it rewards builders and fast followers. Because the markets are inefficient and reflexive, it makes sense to press winners and offload losers. As Seoul rallied, more investment flooded into its ecosystems. The asset earned more comparisons to ETH, new applications attracted more buzz, and the virtuous cycle continued. This is what the top traders fuel, even if skeptics think these patterns resemble Ponzi's. There are rhythms to the crypto market as well. If Bitcoin leads, then alt season is probably right around the corner. Because people now believe this to be true, and because it makes intuitive sense to diversify down the stack, 
The rotation even happens more quickly and reliably these days. There's literally a path to alt-season guide, and some would argue that trading narrative momentum in crypto really is as simple as strong Bitcoin, stronger ETH, strongest small caps. You can listen to FTX as they explain how to trade the everything bubble or read some of my more prolific investors update their theses in real time on Twitter. Or you can look at the top 20 funds and compare and contrast what they hold and crowdsource your portfolio. Before we get into section two, this is a great time to mention Masari Enterprise. Unlock the full potential of Masari with Enterprise. We monitor key sources and channels for all the top products to give you the best insight. Get instant updates and analysis of all major events, changes, or decisions around protocols. Masari Enterprise makes it seamless to receive real-time updates on 150-plus assets directly into your Slack workspace. Sort and filter events using a detailed classification and prioritization system. Visualize all covered events in three different views, calendar timeline, news feed, and downloadable database. You can learn more at masari.io backslash enterprise, and you can get 15% off with the offer code theses underscore 2022. Section 1.10, copy trading, we like the coins, disclosures, not financial advice. Our analyst team discloses their holdings on a monthly basis. The team is getting bigger, so the section is getting longer, but all analysts below have outlined, one, their current 5% plus portfolio holdings, two, top picks from 2021 and how they've performed, if applicable, and three, their highest conviction ideas for 2022. This is not financial advice, so don't sue us for trying to be transparent about potential conflicts. Also, don't take portfolio advice from 2-Bit Idiot. Past performance is not indicative of future results, yada, yada, yada. TBI's biggest winner, Luna, at plus 5,746%. Biggest loser, Ant, at plus 52%. Currently holding Bitcoin, ETH, Luna, Perp, Rune, Zek, Tribe, FEI, OpenSea, Illiquid Holdings were marked up significantly in my angel portfolio likes whatever the team likes aiden biggest winners being axs hard to beat a year to date return of 23621% biggest loser being yaks at negative 80% aiden picked the biggest winner and the biggest loser on the team currently holding axs bitcoin eth rune ftm rgt mkr yfi any m l and Renzac. Likes revenue generating protocols, DeFi 1.0 Renaissance, having a ceiling in a bull market, but a floor in a bear. Adam, bearish monolithic smart contract platforms. Ron over SLP, hard to bet against Sky Mavis, but hard to see SLP enduring once Ronin liquidity mining rewards dry up. Chase currently holds ETH, Soul, ALCX, HNT, OHM, Toki, Ocean, Ruin, Likes Ethereum for Decentralization, Solana for Proof of History, TradeFi, High Frequency Data, and CLOB, Marginal User Onboarding, and SBF, Infrastructural Protocols, Wireless Liquidity Data, etc. Liquidation, Free Borrowing, Gigabrain, DeFi Developers. Dustin currently holds ETH, Sol, RGT, and Ori, Likes modular ecosystems and ETH scaling solutions. Bearish the monolith, 
Like Metaverse Infrastructure, RON is an example, but the current games are dog shit. Like Centralized Cloud Compute, RNDR, AKT, etc. Likes on-chain cash flows, super fluid, leads to under-collateralized lending. Eric, biggest winner, Rune, at 739%, only one without a comma, not going to make it. Biggest loser, CVP, at negative 22%, currently holds Bitcoin and ETH. Likes anything enabling multi-chain and L2 applications, but bearish on valuations of most ETH killers. Ishida holds ETH, Sol, and Bitcoin. Likes the shift from applications to infrastructure for Web3, NFTs, data storage, DeFi use cases, gaming, music, DAO tooling, and of course, Bitcoin. Jack's biggest winner, HNT, at plus 3,046%. Biggest loser. Jack is on BD now, so we aren't including him this year but he deserves the credit on HNT. Jerry holds Bitcoin, ETH, Sol, HOM, Cake, likes the reemergence of Ethereum post-merge and shift back from alternative L1s, staking protocols, more trade fi integration with DeFi, off-chain collateral, ways to avoid needing to over-collateralize, tokenizing of real-world assets, etc., which brings organic adoption back to DeFi in 2022, Web3 infrastructure, GameFi aggregators, and Metaverse infrastructure. Marge, and I apologize in advance for the pronunciation, holds Bitcoin, ETH, and CRV, likes ETH, media and entertainment as a broad category because of mass adoption potential, the intersection of DeFi and TradeFi, DAO tooling, crypto.com, special purpose DAOs, SPDs will be a thing. Mason, Biggest winner, another smart AXS pick at 23,621%. Biggest loser, Ant at plus 52%. DAO's so hot right now. DAO Infra, not so hot. Holds Bitcoin, Ethereum, Atom, HNT, Index. Likes modularity, NFT platforms like Rari and Rare. MVI, Web3 Infra, i.e. AR, GRT, AKT, LPT, Pool, creator monetization, e.g. Mirror, NFT not equal to DeFi, e.g. NFTX, Fractional.art, Cosmos hubs like Atom and Osmo, data availability layers like Ceramic and Celestia, ZK rollups, Coinbase, and USDC, Metaverse infrastructure, governance tooling, and loyalty points exchanges, dislikes, massive bull market valuations, Thin Mint Girl Scout cookies. Tomas holds Bitcoin, ETH, Rune, and Luna, likes multi-chain projects, metaverse and gaming, financialization of fun with play to earn, ETH scaling solutions, ZK Tech particularly, DeFi blue chips, fingers crossed for 2022, cash generating tokens, liquid staking, and solid dev teams. Watkins' biggest winner is Luna at 5,746%. Biggest loser is Cream at negative 39%, currently holding ETH, Luna, Soul, Sin, HNT, and AR. Likes cash. I know it's a melting ice cube, but otherwise multi-chain infrastructure, long modularity, Web3 infrastructure, the Web3 before Web3, ZK Tech, all the smart kids are talking about it, Cosmos ecosystem, finally time, decentralized stablecoin protocols, particularly a permable and DAO infrastructure, hard to play, but massive trend. Finally, I'm cautiously optimistic DeFi and think it makes a comeback in 2022. Wait, DeFi 1.0 is not dead. 
Wilson, biggest winner, HNT at plus 3,046%. Biggest loser, Bitcoin at plus 92%. Currently holds HNT, ETH, Atom, Osmo, DOT, ACA, slash CAR, and some Soul Luna ABAX. Likes modular L1s that enable customizable execution layers with Solana as the most viable hedge, multi-chain infrastructure and tooling, the unsung heroes of the modular thesis, storage like Arweave, shared security and data availability like Celestia, indexer and data query protocols like the Graph and Covalent, computing marketplaces like Acash, liquid staking protocol so you can have your cake and rehypothecate it too, Lido, Rocket Pool, Akala, Umi, and DeFi hubs, and the rise of new hubs within the Cosmos ecosystem, Osmosis, Terra, Umi. Also, zero-knowledge tech and its iterations like ZK Rollups will revolutionize the scalability and UX of crypto economies. Starkware and ZK Sync rightfully steal the show, but keep an eye on other projects like Alio that can unlock new types of crypto-enabled applications. Our research team has grown, so we can't list everyone this year, but our holdings are updated monthly on this page. I advise any readers or listeners to check out the full portfolio from last year on Masari Screener. Section 2.0, 10 people to watch. Section 2.1, we're all going to make it. In the past, I've avoided the urge to give everyone a spot on the list because it felt like a cop-out and the sign of a market top. What's different this time? is the emphasis we're beginning to see on learning, earning, and contributing as a path to riches versus mere passive speculation. We're all going to make it is my favorite crypto meme in years. It says, we're still early without coming across like an obnoxious early MLM punter. It's a memeable twist on the famous Balaji quip, win and help win, which is a personal favorite, and it embodies more mission alignment and altruism than other crypto Twitter favorite, up only. We're all going to make it embodies crypto's cultural transformation from the down with the government, let's move to a citadel crowd, to the let's fix the future with better tech, aligned incentives, and other builders crowd. We're all going to make it includes you, assuming you're reading this report with an open mind. Welcome. And if you're still skeptical of crypto, no sweat. Just don't be openly hostile and closed-minded to its potential. Bad faith critics like Jamie Dimon are not going to make it. Seriously, though, Diamond's thoughts on crypto over the years have been consistent and consistently wrong. He's called it a terrible store of value in 2014, said it will not survive and will be stopped in 2015. It's going nowhere in 2016 and is a fraud in 2017. Told interviewers, I don't really give a shit about crypto in 2018, then launched JPM coin pilots in 2019, admitted it's not my cup of tea in 2020, and then tripled down on his dismissiveness this fall by saying, I have no interest in it, that it's fool's gold and worthless. Don't be like Jamie, he's not going to make it. Section 2.2, the big guys, Samani, CMS, and Suzu. Big year for the big guys. Yes, a lot of amazing tech has been built, and yes, there are amazing founders who deserve high praise. They're all covered elsewhere in this section and broader report. But let's be honest, it was, above all, a banner year for whales, specifically the big investors who pulled through the 2018 bear market intact and lived to realize some of the biggest wins of 2021. 
Kyle Samani's multi-coin capital had a historic year by crypto standards and venture capital standards, period, with multiple billion-dollar winning bets across a variety of crypto segments. The Graph, Helium, Arweave, Solana all reached billion-dollar network status this year, and the rumor is multi-coin eclipsed $10 billion in assets under management in the process. Retail investors follow crypto's hot hands, and no one has been more on the mark with moonshot seed investments than Multicoin. They talk their book via public investment memos, but I've learned a lot from them even when I've been on the wrong side of the thesis. Fucking Zcash. On the other side of the world, another giant looms, Suju's Three Arrows Capital has amassed one of the largest funds in Asia and boasts one of the top performing portfolios in their own right. They were also one of the biggest bettors on the Grayscale Trust Trade in 2020, clipping double-digit premiums to net asset value for most of the year at a massive scale. Their stakes in Solana, Avalanche, and Polkadot have skyrocketed, and Suju's got no problem changing allegiances, calling it like he sees it, and kicking the hornet's nest. Then their CMS holdings. Nobody in crypto has more fun than the penguins, and they tend to go big with everything. CMS popularized the hotball of money meme in the beginning of this year. He sent $5,000 worth of Girl Scout cookies to one of our analysts. He relentlessly mocks bears and paper-handed traders. He bought a 7-inch cube, pays people to take Twitter shit-talking to live debates. Rumor has it he even bid on a dinosaur. If true, that may have been his only mistrade of the year. CMS and team may also be the fastest traders and most responsive investors in crypto. Nice byproduct of not having to manage other people's money. May you all have as much fun in the new year as CMS has every day. 2.3 Emily Choi of Coinbase. One of the things I find most remarkable about Coinbase is how resilient they have been amidst the near full turnover of their leadership team in recent years. Aside from Brian Armstrong, nearly no one from the early days is left on staff. Fred Esram remains on the board, but his attention is on scaling venture fund paradigm. Many other employees in the Coinbase Mafia have gone on to start new companies or venture funds. I would argue two people outside of Brian who have been most responsible for the company's ongoing success have been former CTO Bailaji Srinivasan, who despite his short one-year tenure helped steer the company in the right multi-asset strategic direction as 50% of Coinbase revenue now comes from trading pairs beyond Bitcoin and ETH. And Emily Choi, whose BD and M&A chops quickly catapulted her into the president and COO role at the company. The backstory behind Coinbase Ventures is pretty remarkable. No full-time employees born a day after Emily brought the idea to Armstrong, now one of the most active investors in crypto, etc. But it's the large-scale corporate M&A the company has done that's been even more impressive. The company's Earn.com acquisition was largely considered to be a $100 million acquihire of Biology as CTO, but Earn has now done $43 million in high-margin revenue in the first nine months of the year. Bison Trails, which the company views as a potential AWS-level bet on hosted blockchain infrastructure, now powers the Coinbase cloud product and its $325 million in run-rate staking revenue. The company's $55 million Zappo purchase in 2019 snagged Grayscale as a customer and doubled Coinbase's assets under custody. Custodial revenues are now $120 million annualized. 
the core's exchange transaction revenues will continue and be the engine of the business for the foreseeable future. Coinbase's distribution and regulatory positioning means they can make other major accretive purchases in the new year as well. Some, like Neutrino, Compliance Tech, and Agara, machine learning for customer service, might upgrade to the back office, but I'd expect the bigger deals to open up new revenue lines like a Plaid for Crypto, Zabo, or institutional data licenses skew. The inorganic growth strategy is hardly unique to Coinbase, but the early wins under Emily are impressive, something startups should keep in mind as both an opportunity and a threat. 2.4, Devin Finzer of OpenSea. As a fortunate early investor in the company, hashtag humblebrag, I can tell you I've never before seen a financial profile that looks like OpenSea's. The world's dominant NFT marketplace is raking in cash, hand over fist amidst NFT euphoria, though competition is coming. Coinbase has 3 million users on a waiting list for its soon-to-be-launched NFT platform, four times OpenSea's aggregate historical users. FTX rolled out a platform for Solana-based NFTs. Gemini already has Nifty Gateway. Other exchanges will almost universally follow suit with products of their own. Then there's the open multi-source tokenized competitors who are lurking, like Infinity and the Fathom-based Andre Cronjay project, Ardeon. Since I'm already privy to a tiny bit of private information, I won't speculate on what next year will look like, as I wouldn't want accurate guesses to look like inside baseball after the fact. But I'll at least provide some thoughts on the company's current trajectory and the future of NFT marketplaces at a more conceptual level later in Chapter 6. For now, I'll just say how impressive OpenSea has been in scaling through the chaos, keeping the site humming amidst exponential month-over-month and market growth and the occasional bugs and surging Ethereum gas prices, an unfortunate employee controversy over flipping NFTs the company was curating for its homepage, the distracting drumbeat of new competitor announcements, Devin and team have marched on seemingly unfazed. I think OpenSea could be a $100 billion company or network eventually, and their critics underestimate their head start. I watched the same thing happen with Coinbase. I'm hardly an impartial critic, but it's been a losing move historically to bet against category leaders with great teams, and that's OpenSea in a nutshell. Check out Devin's two bankless podcasts from March and October to get a sense for OpenSea's progression. And of course, go bid on an NFT in this report. 2.5, Dan Robinson and Dave White of Paradigm. More investors, come on. Well, yes and no. Last year, I featured Paradigm's white hat hacker, Samson, in our top 10, and he had another banner year saving DeFi users from nine-figure hacks, even when those exploits happen to direct competitors. Samson now sits atop the Ethereum Foundation's bounties leaderboard. He's not your typical GP. I'd apply the same filter to Paradigm's nominations this year, given how prolific they've been in producing token economic research for some important financial primitives in DeFi and NFTs. The Uniswap V3 automated market marker, which we'll go into deeper detail on in Chapter 7, was largely spawned by Paradigm's Dan Robinson. Things like floor perps, synthetics that allow NFT holders to borrow against assets, and Ricks and Mortys, NFT fractionalization primitives aim to tackle illiquidity challenges in the NFT markets. Power perps, liquid options like exposure without the need for strikes and expiries, TWA M, large AMM orders spread out over time, and everlasting options co-written with FTX's Sam Bankman-Fried could bring larger and more sophisticated investors to DeFi markets. 
Those last six were authored and co-authored by Dave White, who joined in January. The useful research output from Paradigm's team is pretty insane, actually, and that's only the staff we know about so far. I'm looking forward to see what they have up their sleeves for 2022. Section 2.6, Jeff Zerlin, the Jiho, Axie Infinity. The Jiho rewrote the playbook on crypto community building this past year. The mission, conquer the gaming world, the secret weapon, an unassuming Pokemon-like Trojan horse of an NFT card game that would catapult Axie Infinity to the top of the crypto realm. As head of growth and community at Sky Mavis, the game studio behind Axie, Jeff discovered and cultivated a new untapped audience for Axie's play-to-earn game in the Philippines. Every day, thousands of people there play Axie for fun and as an income subsidy. Philippines is now home to 40% of the entire Axie user base, and Sky Mavis recently eclipsed 1 million daily active users. Axie evangelists are hardly in short supply, as the native token AXS, whose design was spearheaded by Jeff, returned 125,000 in the past year. Not a typo, 1,250x. But some fans are adamant that Axie may end up only being a footnote in the long game Jiho and team are playing. Axie Infinity itself was a bootstrapping mechanism for Sky Mavis's Ronin Exchange, an Ethereum-like sidechain designed to facilitate cheap, and gamer-friendly transactions. Ronin has generated a billion dollars in revenue since May, holds more than $9 billion in assets, and is the second largest blockchain by NFT secondary sales. Sky Mavis is one of the fastest-growing game studios in history and recently secured a $152 million Series B led by A16Z. The company put the finishing touches on the walled garden it erected with Ronin, then launched a token, Ron, and decentralized exchange, Katana, this fall. They're now positioned to launch an entirely new studio of Web3-oriented games and applications to hungry and wealthy fans. Axie's success has catapulted an entire new genre, crypto gaming and subgenre play-to-earn games into relevance, with some $1.4 billion in funding flooding into related NFT projects in Q3 alone. Meanwhile, Ronin has become one of the case studies for modular scaling in crypto. Not bad for a product built under the guise of a fluffy cartoon card game. Section 2.7, Jay Graber, Blue Sky, and Tess Reinerson, Twitter. If any big tech company disrupts itself in a meaningful way with Web3 tech, it will likely be the under-monetized, founder-led social media company with the most thoughtful crypto backer. I'm talking, of course, about Meta. Curveball! When I started writing this section, I expected a 30-minute review and quick entry on Jay Graber, taking over Twitter's Blue Sky initiative this summer. Jay decentralizes Twitter with a mocking Jay avatar was my placeholder and starting bias. When I started to actually dig in on Blue Sky, what I found was a bit different. There's been relatively little movement within the Blue Sky community so far. Compare their GitHub slash GitLab to DMs which made me wonder whether Twitter was serious in its efforts to disrupt itself and unlock its honeypot of user data. Jay is awesome, but is Blue Sky for real or a shallow sandbox? Perhaps the full-stack decentralized media play wasn't an appropriate near-term end goal for Twitter, given crypto's current throughput constraints. It was likely premature to hold that expectation on such an early-stage project like Blue Sky, Instead, the project appears to be focused first on connecting data between other decentralized platforms like Mastodon, IPFS, Audius, etc. That is interesting, and it's an important bit of foundational work for the decentralized web. It's just not as self-disruptive for Twitter as I thought at first. 
yet. Doesn't seem like Amazon faces any meaningful Web3 threats right now, perhaps AWS in the longer term. Google Search and Microsoft Office may have impregnable walls. Apple is still dominant in hardware first and foremost. YouTube could theoretically incorporate Web3 components, but that seems unlikely as they already split revenue with creators stingily. On the other hand, Facebook aka Meta, is different. Their rebrand isn't just an embrace of a Web3 future. It's a flight to higher ground, born out of political necessity, survival even. Will we see Libra, DM, Novi meaningfully integrated into Facebook's, I mean Meta's, Messenger and WhatsApp products? They're trying. Will we see NFTs built into Instagram or Oculus? Most likely. If $10 billion a year is the real number they're targeting for metaverse investments, will Facebook's Blue app open its back end and begin to allow its users to license their data directly to third parties? Maybe if the other bets pan out. Could the meta meta game plan be to monetize the platform's under-monetized networks first? and pave the way for the impossible self-disruption of Facebook's current ad-driven business. I'm not a Mark Zuckerberg apologist. I simply think that necessity is the mother of invention. Past performance is a good predictor of future success, and no one else in big tech has all of the ingredients to go hard after Web3 as part of their core business model. It's the holidays. Give Mark a chance to stage a Grinch-like comeback. I'm lukewarm on Twitter's actual embrace of decentralizing technologies outside of Jack's Bitcoin obsession. But again, it all comes down to Jay and the Blue Sky team. I'm hoping they surprise us. Update. Surprise us they did. When I wrote this a few weeks ago, Tess Reinerson's hire had not yet been announced as head of engineering at Twitter Crypto. That got my attention. I'm much more excited about Blue Sky slash Twitter in 2022 now that there are two related teams, one of which is a dedicated in-house team reporting to the CTO. Update, update. Jack just resigned. The non-Bitcoin floodgates are open. Watch Jay and Tess closely. 2.8, Kristen Smith, the Blockchain Association, and Katie Hahn, A16Z. I've got a meaty policy section on the docket this year for a reason. With three years left in the Biden administration and the successful passage of a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill and its disastrous crypto provisions, there is a lot riding on our industry's policy leaders. It's no small task either, given how small their current ranks are. That makes Kristen Smith and Katie Hahn critical players in the new year. Kristen runs the industry's largest dedicated trade association, the Blockchain Association. It's regarded as the most credible corporate member effort in D.C., and Kristen's team was one of the driving forces behind the furious 11th-hour negotiations to amend the crypto broker language during floor debates this summer. While the effort failed, barely, the fight helped the B.A. add serious financial resources and talent depth. Membership fees have soared 3x, and she added full-time staff like former Compound General Counsel Jake Shervinsky, and new government affairs lead Dave Grimaldi this fall. The problem with coalitions, though, is the time and energy it takes to manage the diverse personalities. For instance, the BAA counts Ripple as a member, which creates headaches. Its addition of Binance US as a member in the 2020 rankled Coinbase to such a degree that the latter dropped support and has since opted to drive their own policy agenda and back other organization, the Crypto Council for Innovation, with 
Ribbit, Square, Paradigm, and others. Last I heard, though, CCI has yet to hire an executive director, so the coalition has many months of infrastructure building ahead before it can approach parity with the BA. That brings us to Katie Hahn and the policy team she assembled at A16Z. The former federal prosecutor, Coinbase board member, and now general partner at A16Z's Mammoth Crypto Fund has recruited a former Hillary Clinton and Biden advisor, a former crypto specialist from Treasury, and a former SEC and CFTC commissioners as advisors. A16Z has a megaphone with tremendous reach, and their policy work thus far has been fast. The Web3 policy hub they unveiled recently has good starting materials for policymakers, most notably a deck that lays out why crypto should be a policy priority for lawmakers, which specific legislative proposals and working language could form the backbone of new crypto laws that address core policy concerns without crippling the industry, and how staffers can get educated and play catch-up on crypto. We need unity and speed right now. The BA and A16Z approaches give us a good one-two punch going into the new year. Before we move into section 2.9, I'd like to tell you a little bit more about Enterprise. Unlock the full potential of Masari with Enterprise. Again, we monitor key sources and channels for all the top projects to give you the best insight. You can get instant updates and analysis of all major events, changes, or decisions around protocols. Masari Enterprise makes it seamless to receive real-time updates on 150-plus assets directly into your Slack workspace. Sort and filter events using a detailed classification and prioritization system. Visualize all covered events in three different views, those being calendar, timeline, newsfeed, and downloadable database. Our coverage includes network updates, token listing, attacks and vulnerabilities, governance proposals, technical upgrades, and much more. If you're interested, you can receive 15% off with the offer code theses underscore 2020. Again, that's theses underscore 2020. Check us out at masari.io backslash enterprise. Continuing on with section 2.9, Commissioner Hester Pierce of the SEC. Crypto Mom may have been a fitting nickname for Pierce during Chair Jay Clayton's tenure. These days, she's more like Lord Commander of Crypto's Night Watch. In the Clayton era, the SEC was hardly a paragon of pro-growth crypto policy, but at least the commission avoided actively pursuing harmful, systematic over-regulation of markets they didn't yet understand. Today, winter is coming, and Pierce is the last line of defense First, the soulless, melanin-resistant white walker that is Chair Gensler, a man whose life mission is to become Treasury Secretary by any means necessary, even if that means crippling an emerging industry that sets back American tech by a decade. I'm still just warming up more in Chapter 4. Pierce criticized the SEC's enforcement action against Poloniex for its lack of clarity. She's been a voice of dissent, advocating for spot crypto EFT since 2018. She's been outspoken about improving investment access for non-millionaires, recognizing that private markets are where all growth has been in U.S. markets for years. She's done that while also staying true to the SEC's investor protection mandate, advocating for modernization of reporting rules and regulatory beach with lifeguards versus a regulatory sandbox treating adults like kiddos. Pierce's voice has been a welcoming source of self-awareness, competence, and restraint emanating from D.C. It's the voice of someone who's done their homework and works to find solutions versus sweeping restrictions against anything that appears new and useful. 
Pierce said, when confronted with new technologies, new products, and new ways of doing things, the regulator's tendency is to say no instead of yes, to say stop instead of go, and to see danger instead of possibility. The SEC's focus is appropriately on investor protection, particularly retail investor protection and market integrity, but investor opportunity matters too. By investor opportunity, I mean the chance for investors to try new products and services to include in their portfolios new types of assets to use the latest technologies to get in on the ground floor of new opportunities to experiment and learn from investment successes and failures. Investors want protection from fraud and easy access to robust disclosures, but they also want to be able to interact with their financial firms using the latest technologies to have access to the full range of investment opportunities and to take charge of their financial future by spending their hard-earned money as they see fit. Investors at times may be willing to take on more risk than the regulator thinks is prudent, a healthy regulatory response would resist the urge to override investor decisions and instead engage and educate investors using the same technologies through which they are investing. Yes, please, more of this. Crypto investors notice and appreciate thoughtful policy. Crypto entrepreneurs notice too. Crypto lawyers like it when policy leaders propose workable legal solutions. We want more of this. Pierce's thoughts on token shilling, touting securities without disclosing the fact that you are getting paid and how much violates the law. Nevertheless, we are disappointed that the commission's settlement did not explain which digital assets touted were securities, an omission which is symptomatic of our reluctance to provide additional guidance about how to determine whether a token is being sold as a part of securities offering or which tokens are securities. More of this. Pierce then went on to say, on registration-only enforcement actions, registration violations, even standing alone, are serious, and our enforcement actions can serve to deter such violations and protect harmed investors. We should strive to avoid enforcement actions and sanctions, however, that enervate innovation and stifle the economic growth that innovation brings. Entrepreneurs may be forced to choose between unpalatable options, expending their limited capital on costly legal consultation and compliance, or foregoing their pursuit of innovation due to fear of becoming subject to an enforcement action. A regulatory safe harbor could resolve this unhappy dilemma. More of this. Pierce finished on paternalism saying, we're not a merit regulator, so we shouldn't be in the business of deciding whether something is good or bad. An investor is thinking of their entire portfolio, and sometimes we're thinking in one-off terms of a particular product on its own. We forget people are building portfolios. Most crypto professionals welcome thoughtful regulation, so long as we believe it will be fairly and consistently applied. It's technically feasible, and it doesn't violate the Constitution. Pierce is starting to win over open-minded policymakers because her positions are clear, consistent, and solutions versus jurisdiction-minded. We want and need her defending the wall. Section 210, Duquan Terraform Labs. At the time of writing this section, November 8th, 2021, I knew I wanted to highlight the fastest horse of the year in the competitive Layer 1 race. Ethereum had rallied nearly 10x on the year, which is nothing to sneeze at, but the real story of 2021 was Ethereum's block space congestion, high fees, and the subsequent explosion of its Layer 1 competitors. Avalanche is up 25x year over year, Solana and Polygon 110x, 
Phantom 160X, but it's Terra that has reigned supreme with a staggering 170X return. I include Do here for other reasons too. Number one, Terra is one of the largest crypto investment plays in Asia, and it's the project in the top 10 layer ones with the deepest presence in the enormous Korean crypto market. Number two, Terra is actually being used at scale as collateral for the second largest crypto collateralized stablecoin, UST, which now sits at $7.2 billion in market cap, up from $0 last fall. Number three, the breadth of Terra infrastructure, Anchor for Lending, Vega for Derivatives, Mirror for Synthetic Securities, Mars for AMM, rivals that of any other blockchain not named Ethereum and may sit on a more stable, interoperable technical foundation Cosmos Interblockchain Communications Protocol for the long term. Most importantly, Do gets the nod here versus Rivals because of his willingness to punch back. After getting served a subpoena at Mainnet 2021, mere minutes before coming on stage with me for a panel, he brushed it off and decided to take the fight to the SEC with a lawsuit of his own. It's a fight he might win, and an encouraging one to see fought regardless of the outcome. Honorable mentions, there are many people within crypto who could easily make the top 10 list each year, but no one has made my list twice. Folks who easily could have made repeat appearances this year include Phylogy, whose encyclopedia knowledge and raw processing power is a marvel, Sam Bankman-Fried, who had plenty of write-ups already as the world's wealthiest person under 30, and Michael Saylor, who's increasingly looking like he might be on the winning side of one of the ballsiest corporate trades of all time. Also, a special shout-out is in order for the bankless duo Ryan Sean Adams and David Hoffman, who have been right about ETH but do not make the cut because I think they've been right for the wrong reasons and have created the highest signal podcast in crypto, one of the few things I consume religiously. Section 3, Top 10 Thoughts on Bitcoin. 3.1, please check on Peter Schiff. Sun Tzu said, gold will get demonetized so brutally your grandkids will think a gold digger is someone who scavenges for metal scraps in the dumpster to sell for sats. Bitcoin has eaten gold's lunch for a decade. This should have been a boom time for gold bugs, high inflation, low trust in government, commodities booming, but instead gold was outflanked by a faster, younger, wilder horse in Bitcoin. Investing $100 in gold 10 years ago would have yielded... $102 today, underperforming inflation. Meanwhile, investing $100 in Bitcoin over that time period would have yielded $1.7 million. Ouch, Peter Schiff. Bitcoin shows no signs of slowing down either. Given its macro tailwinds and multi-cycle resiliency, it's hard to envision a scenario where Bitcoin falls out of favor anytime soon while the rest of crypto rallies. From a regulatory standpoint, investors are more comfortable than ever with digital gold. Now that multiple institutional vehicles exist to access Bitcoin and other early adopters have already paved the way, Paul Tudor Jones, MicroStrategy, Tesla, El Salvador, Miami, etc. The institutions are coming has flipped to the institutions are here. The strongest tailwind at our back was best summed up by Marty Bent, who noted the money owed to the pensioners is simply too much. The returns produced are too low, and even when they are realized they are denominated in a currency that is losing purchasing power, by the day. With stocks at nosebleed levels, bonds yielding negative real returns, and inflation here to stay, Bitcoin remains the best liquid bet on the institutional rotation to inflation-resistant store-of-value assets. It won't be the only winning crypto asset, but it will continue to pull up the rest of the asset class as crypto rapidly replaces debt in diversified portfolios. 
If quantitative easing actually does debase a currency, duh, then as Raul Powell pointed out, we'd have a bunch of charts to reflect that. S&P index growing in lockstep with Fed balance sheet, real estate prices rising on a lag after fresh QE, etc. And we do. Money printer go brrr, buy everything, especially the orange coin. Section 3.2, the king stay the king, no flippinings. I'd put the probability of a flippening next year at maybe 20%, and not because ETH is money no matter what Sotheby's says. If ETH does manage to flip in Bitcoin, it won't be because it's a superior money, but rather because the market values the world's most unique user-owned computing platform and its earnings and growth potential more highly than it does digital golds. In other words, we'll look at Bitcoin versus ETH like we do M0 versus Google. This isn't an original thought. BitMEX founder Arthur Hayes broke this analogy down in a piece on the flippening debate where he says, one, it's impossible for ETH to be the world's best virtual computer and the world's best money at the same time. I agree. And number two, crypto's largest monetary network will likely be bigger than its biggest distributed tech company. Yes, again. That said, it's possible to hold the view that crypto as a whole will outperform Bitcoin, i.e. Bitcoin dominance will decline, while Bitcoin retains its top spot atop the global leaderboard, Ethereum is more a missable target than Bitcoin for competitive layer one computing platforms. Ethereum's scarce resource is the finite capacity of its global settlement ledger, and this year proved how quickly other layer ones could siphon demand for crypto transaction settlement when Ethereum's ledger gets too expensive. More of this in Chapter 8. On the other hand, Bitcoin's scarce resource is its simple monetary meme. Its pure-play money competitors are less intimidating. Dogecoin, Shiba Inu, Bitcoin Cash, Craig Cash, and the forks of their forks are not much to write home about. Perhaps you like Doge. There are plenty of smart investors who do, like Shuzu, who loves Doge fundamentally due to its virality, community, humor, and unserious user base who spent 2021 driving meme stocks to the moon, too. I understand this thesis, but it falls flat in one crucial regard. Jokes get old, and even early holders will eventually realize they're sitting on real gains and find a less expensive joke. Reflexivity isn't fun on the way down. There won't be an institutional buy wall for cute Shiba Inus when the trend reverses. An unserious user base could also lead to a large swath of users who panic sell in Q1 once they get their tax form and realize the magnitude of their obligations. Bitcoin investors aren't capital gains tax novices. Many Dogecoin punters likely are. There are two other proof-of-work coins that are also in the currency conversation, of course, Zcash and Monero. But holding them requires a long-term commitment and true peer-to-peer -peer private transactions and a warm embrace of pain. They might be assets you want to own just in case your country breaks down and you need to flee with a bolt bag and a Ledger Brain wallet. But the smartest thing I ever did was reverse my dummy, dumb, dumb, super Zek long trade last December and plow it back into ETH where it belonged. I'm writing this with tears streaming down my cheeks, but Multicoin was right about privacy as a feature, and I'd rather make money than be right. Zek is still 1% of my portfolio, and I do love Zuko, but it's no longer in my top five. Others have outrun Zek. It's not my fault. There's really no credible flipping competition for Bitcoin aside from Ethereum, but ETH has to watch its back too. Bitcoin dominance slid down from 71% to 42% this year. Bad. But ETH's smart contract platform dominance also slid from 80% to 60%. It might bleed additional value to its new Layer 2 roll-up allies that come to market in early 2022. 
There may be higher upside plays in crypto, but there was nothing wrong with owning GE during the dot-com boom. GE stock went from $100 in mid-1999 to $450 in mid-2000, then back to $185 in mid-2003. In four years, it crashed to a level 85% higher than it found itself in the market run-up. That could very well be Bitcoin's trajectory if Web3 reaches Web1 levels of insanity. Would you hate if Bitcoin crashed from 275 k to 125 k next year? Section 3.3, Multi-Chain Reserve. We'll talk about interoperability in Chapter 8, but for now, I'll say that I think UD has it right. If the future is one of hundreds or thousands of interoperable blockchains, then end users won't necessarily know or care which blockchains the monetary applications run on. Bitcoin holders will hold and use Bitcoin as a digital gold alternative without worrying about the technical details that govern which chain or pegged Bitcoin derivative they use along the way. Just so long as the base Bitcoin blockchain hums and produces blocks every 10 minutes as a settlement layer. More than 1.5 of the Bitcoin supply is already wrapped on Ethereum through BitGo, more than twice as much as was locked at the end of last year. But that may be the tip of the iceberg as millions of Bitcoins begin to hit other blockchains as well. A few demand drivers for Bitcoin. Number one, Bitcoin will be a reserve on other layer ones, whereas ETH will be a competitor to them. Number two, cross-blockchain bridge protocols like Rune will unlock more peer-to-peer -peer swaps. Number three, fears over stablecoins, independence, censorship, resistance, or collateral collateralization could lead to more interest in Bitcoin collateralized crypto dollars. Ethereum bulls may protest that this is exactly what makes ETH good money and a capital asset. It's compatible with other EVM chains and layer 2 rollups and already collateralizes stable coins like Maker's Day. But that's backwards looking. Bitcoin has a 2.5x market cap lead and a much lower rate of collateralization as working capital today, which means it's being under leveraged. And there's a much higher ceiling for new Bitcoin as DeFi collateral than ETH. I think wrapped slash synthetic Bitcoin tradable on other blockchains will double again in 2022. 75% confident we'll see 3% wrapped at least as more long-term Bitcoin holders realize they can borrow more cheaply against their holdings in DeFi than other centralized services. You can read more about it in the DeFi assets facilitating Bitcoin's interoperability in our report. Section 3.4, the gift of Bitcoin EFTs. We're going to spend some time on EFTs in Chapter 5 because their approval was one of the most important developments this year. They also highlight the decade-long ineptitude of the SEC. I know, I know, we're this close to Chapter 4. Offer zero redeeming qualities versus assets acquired directly on custodial exchanges and generally represent all the things normies were supposed to hate about Bitcoin. They're complex volatile, terrible investments that enrich Wall Street promoters and trend towards zero over time. Despite the Bitcoin futures EFT's toxicity, it's a fortunate accident of history that the SEC protected retail from them and Wall Street by mucking up the approval process for so long. The grayscale trade, Chapter 5, and its one-way inflows may have pulled forward institutional demand from investors looking to capitalize on GBTC's public markets premium and from a specific form of retail demand for those holding Bitcoin in tax-exempt retirement accounts. But even then, eight years of SEC foot-dragging limited the Bitcoin float in EFT-like vehicles to just 5%. An earlier approval could have created centralization risks in Bitcoin's money supply, risk that is minor today, reducing the odds Wall Street can ever manipulate the Bitcoin markets. 
I'll save my juicier predictions on EFTs for the other sections, but my bet is that total Bitcoin locked in EFT-like vehicles will remain less than 10% of outstanding Bitcoin supply in the next five years. As other large institutions build positions, the smart ones will go for direct exposure and lower fees. To the extent we see more than 10% of Bitcoin supply locked in EFT structures, it will likely be due to their inclusion in other EFT projects, such as ARK invests $400 million of GBTC holdings in ARCW. Quick aside, if you're someone that's interested in crypto and you're already writing newsletters that are data-driven, we invite you to apply to our Masari Hub. Kickstart your career by becoming a Masari Hub analyst. Contribute research to a growing and thriving ecosystem. Build your resume. Start the revolution. If you're an absolute crypto NFT fiend that enjoys writing, Fact-based articles, you might as well get paid for it. Come check us out. Section 3.5, the great fall of China's Bitcoin industry. For years, Chinese miners accounted for over 70% of Bitcoin's hash rate. Then the CCP turned hostile last year and implemented an outright mining ban this spring, leading to a multi-billion reversal of fortune for the West and the most incredible chart I've seen in eight years. The study isn't perfect, and I'm sure that Bitcoin mining hasn't gone to absolute zero in mainland China, but that doesn't make the chart any less directionally insane. It's hard to overstate how incredible this development was. Since 2013, China's shadow in the Bitcoin markets has loomed large. Investors worried what would happen to the network security if Chinese mining capacity was turned off. It turns out, basically nothing. Policymakers worried about the carbon footprint of mining, where China had one of the dirtiest coal-powered energy mixes. That's out, too. Then China criminalized all trading in an attempt to enforce capital controls and seeded a historic integration opportunity with the open financial markets of the future in the process. Now Bitcoin is back to all-time highs. What's more, before the CCP kicked them out, we got tangible proof from the miners that they would migrate their capacity to wherever energy was cheapest, regardless of the source. Each year, you could guarantee that capacity would move to the clean and hydroelectric-rich Sichuan province during the abundant rainy season and back to coal-powered plants during the remainder of the year. The Cambridge study showed this seasonality in striking detail. Last year, I mused that even if China remained dominant in mining, the giants in the U.S. that may enter the race, such as Fidelity or DCG, might be okay with minting at a small loss to help show they take geopolitical risks seriously. Instead, the CCP just gifted us an entire industry. DCG's foundry even took the top spot in the global Bitcoin mining leaderboard for the first time. It's such a senseless, strategic blunder that it's hard to imagine the CCP failing to undo the mining band, at least, even if they continue to keep a close eye on trading and capital controls in 2022. It sounds like these policies are already being reconsidered for a good reason. I predict mining is back in the mainland by mid-year, 70% confidence, especially as the CCP realizes that a proof-of-work mining can double as clean energy stimulus. Who will take these poor huddled miners? 3.6. Bitcoin as clean energy stimulus. Senator Warren warned us we need to crack down on environmentally wasteful crypto mining practices to protect the planet. The European Union's top market regulator warned about soaring environmental costs from investing in digital currencies. We were even warmed of the creeping exposure to crypto within ESG portfolios as if Bitcoin were a bona fide toxin. Let's talk about Bitcoin's actual role in our clean energy future. 
the TLDR. Number one, curbing global emissions in a reasonable time period is politically impossible. Number two, still, we should try to curb the biggest emitters to in quotes, bend the curve. Number three, Bitcoin can help reduce emissions by recycling otherwise wasted slash stranded energy. Number four, mining infrastructure could actually help subsidize new clean energy capacity. Number five, all while Bitcoin offers S and G solutions in ESG as well. Let's go one at a time. Number one, curbing emissions is politically impossible. Will anyone just like, be honest for one fucking second. China will not unilaterally curb their emissions in a meaningful way, and they contribute 50% plus to global emissions. Some Chinese companies now pollute more than entire nations, and China didn't commit anything substantial in recent climate discussions. Why should they? Likewise, do we think Russia is about to rush unilaterally to the climate table? How about Turkmenistan, which boasts 6 million citizens and 31 of the 50 largest methane releases in the past two years? Oh, and the literal gates of hell. India, the world's largest democracy, has laid out plans to get carbon neutrality by 2070. 50 years, great! Whose 50-year forecast has us hitting net zero before major currency failures and debt crises, if not hot war and the AI apocalypse? Carbon capture and clean crypto or climate and political chaos, those are the options. Number two, crypto is eating the world, but Bitcoin mining isn't. The always excellent Lynn Alden broke this down in a recent post, but Bitcoin's environmental impact should scale sublinearly to its economic impact. The problem is that proof-of-work mining will either go away in the short order in the event of failure or consume up to 1% of the world's energy if it grows to a $20 trillion global settlement layer and systematically important Fedware complement or substitute. Big numbers, but not if crypto otherwise automates large swaths of financial services whose current footprint is closer to 3% of global emissions versus Bitcoin's 0.1%. Bitcoin's declining inflation rate means declining proportional security spending, which means declining proportional hash rate intensity. If anything, most of us Bitcoiners realize that the bigger concern is around Bitcoin's current disinflationary supply schedule. The declining block rewards as a percentage of total market cap brings on the risk that, if anything, a fees-driven block reward will not attract enough energy to secure the network. In most economic circles, you get in trouble for using the word hyperinflation, as many fear the phenomenon to be self-fulfilling prophecy. In Bitcoin, the same is true for anyone who calls out the risk of too low inflation. Raise the issue and prepare to duck from 21 million truthers. Number three, Bitcoin recycles energy. It turns out that some of the world's cheapest, clean energy sources are stranded off-grid, just waiting to be tapped. If only there were some portable, geographically agnostic consumer of that capacity. Proof-of-work miners. As we saw from the Szechuan chart, are those consumers greedily absorbing the lowest margin cost kilowatts available. Like water on a 3D topographic map, Bitcoin miners are just benevolent Daniel Plainviews, really. It's the dynamic that leads Nick Grossman and Square and ARK Invest and others to refer to Bitcoin as money battery. I hesitated using this framing initially. It sounds too convenient, right? But I've come around. A perfect example of the money battery in action is in the natural gas venting, methane leakage, and flaring burning methane to carbon dioxide. In the U.S., we flare more natural gas each day 
than Bitcoin's peak global annualized energy usage. From Lynn again, the University of Cambridge estimated that global flare gas recovery potential is eight times larger than Bitcoin's network's energy usage in 2021. In other words, virtually the entire Bitcoin network in its peak 2021 form could hypothetically be run off stranded natural gas in the U.S., let alone the rest of the world. Flaring converts carbon commodities that would be 100% wasted into Bitcoins. This isn't theoretical. It's magical. It's also not new. I wrote about some of the companies doing this work in the theses two years ago. This isn't a state secret either. The dynamic can likely persist indefinitely. Consider, for example, that 20% of natural gas in North Dakota is stranded and flared rather than collected. Bitcoin miners are unique in that they might be able to capture value in remote areas like North Dakota, even relative to the energy-intensive work like server farm operations, because they have higher tolerance for network downtime and low bandwidth environments. Policymakers, for the love of God, your issue is with the American consumers' energy habits and our energy industry, not the Bitcoin energy recycling factories. I know it sounds like a fantastical self-serving narrative, but Bitcoin mining really could be this good for America. Not a single marginal polar bear must die as a result. But Bitcoin bears are another story. Every bear must die. Throw in some subsidies and American Bitcoin mining could be net negative for emissions within a few years. Even Ted Cruz gets it in a quote saying 50% of the natural gas in this country that is flared is being flared in the Permian right now in West Texas. I think that's an enormous opportunity for Bitcoin because that's right now energy that is being wasted. It's, it's being wasted because there's no transmission equipment to get that natural gas where it could be used the way natural gas would ordinarily be employed. It's just being burned. There's so much potential here. We simply can't squander this gift from the CCP. Number four, Bitcoin is a green energy stimulus. Let's hammer this home and think about Bitcoin mining not only as a potential zero emitter, but as big energy's sausage makers, processors that take the leftover waste and turn it into something palatable. The coastal elites will scoff at this notion. They don't need Bitcoin's pink slime because they aren't starving for financial products or prime beef. But what about communities for which mining investments could help plug clean CapEx budgets? Or emerging markets with vast renewable resources but little present consumption demand for all that clean energy? Bitcoin miners are unique business partners because they optimize for a single variable and serve as a mobile energy buyer of last resort for energy that can't be easily transported. You could see nomadic miners incorporated into new clean energy capex for towns that need them to offset sluggish early demand, then kick them out to the next town. The reverse is also true. For low-income countries with cheap energy, miners might help finance or subsidize capex in return for cheap energy rights. Bitcoin mining is already anecdotally and with increasing frequency powering clean energy investments. Aside from flaring, there's the mining facility in Niagara Falls that's taken over a former coal power plant and now leverages hydroelectric power. Its owner previously operated out of coal plants in China. There's North Vancouver, which will be heated with the 96% recycled energy from Bitcoin miners through tech developed by Mint Green. Other novel innovations will inevitably arise as well. If you're skeptical, I don't blame you. I used to think this was more marketing fluff than substance, but China changed all the variables. Ben Thompson nailed it in a recent post saying, one of the biggest mistakes we have made as a society is assuming that energy is intrinsically scarce. Arguments that 
Bitcoin actually provides incentives for investing in energy abundance are self-serving, but that doesn't mean they are wrong either. Nick Carter went through a similar conversation from skeptic to evangelist this year too, saying, Bitcoin mining is converging with the energy sector with amazing rapidity, yielding an explosion of innovation that will both decarbonize Bitcoin in the medium term and will dramatically benefit increasingly renewable grids. What's more, it appears that only Bitcoin, rather than other industrial load sources, can actually achieve some of these goals. He credits the emergence of lifecycle mining, a slowing ASIC developmental cycle, and hybrid grid-based and behind-the-meter mining systems. Square noted in a white paper on Bitcoin's clean energy potential, as society starts deploying more solar and wind, we could potentially unlock profitable new use cases for that electricity, like desalinating water, removing CO2 from the atmosphere, or producing green hydrogen. This really could be the mere beginning of a beautiful friendship. Number five, the cost of the dollar. You could argue the financial industry and the military-industrial complex should at least be included in any comparative environmental analysis, but the real problem with ESG militants' attempted cancellation of Bitcoin, aside from the fact they're wrong about the negative quote-unquote E externalities, is that they also ignore the S and G benefit of crypto in the process. Alex Gladstein from the Human Rights Foundation summed it up best in an incredible piece on the hidden costs of the U.S. dollar. Namely, even if policymakers think Bitcoin is irredeemably dirty and wasteful and crippling to the future of the planet, they shouldn't be able to discriminate on energy usage preferences when the petrodollar props up authoritarian regimes, leads to military aggression, and fuels more fossil fuel consumption in the process. Enough people believe in Bitcoin's value as an investment in new social and governance experiments that its S and G arguably offset even the critics' worst-case E scenarios. Bitcoin is inherently political. Of course, there's another E that may prove compelling to policymakers, the economic impact. U.S. mining is big business. The U.S. listed miners now sitting at nearly $1.5 billion in Bitcoin at current prices hundreds of millions in annual earnings, and significantly improved profit margins due to the China mining capacity exodus. That's what Senator Cruz latched onto this fall in thoughtful remarks on the subject at a Bitcoin conference in Austin. Mining infrastructure is something that could even lead to some unusual alliances between someone like Ted Cruz on the right and AOC on the left. If you want the economic growth that comes with crypto and you want to subsidize and stimulate green energy investments, subsidize clean mining. It's a zero-sum global market, which means that clean energy subsidies would drive out more expensive, dirty mining. The net result would be a Bitcoin network with low carbon intensity dominated by the West. This doesn't even have to be at government level. Nick also points out that ESG investors could invest in renewables only, publicly traded miners like Iris Energy, and have the same effect as government subsidies by lowering green mining's cost of capital. Okay, okay, I'll move on, but I can't help but get fired up about this subject when politicians and the media just outright lie about the dynamics. Do your homework. Number seven, proof of stake works because proof of work worked. Meltem said, proof of work and proof of stake are not substitutes. They are not even complements. They are two fundamentally different things and should not be compared or contrasted. As with the Bitcoin is money, no ETH is money debate, this is one of those areas where the two sides talk past each other. Proof of work burns energy in order to prove the network is providing fair settlement assurances at global scale without reliance on the network's owners, who could easily centralize over time. 
The separation of transaction processing incentives and ownership responsibilities is important for a network that aims to be a non-sovereign alternative to money. By contrast, it's suitable to think of proof-of-stake networks which employ token holders as collective governing bodies as business analogs. Each individual proof-of-stake network comes with centralization, censorship, and coercion risks, but that's okay. The real proof-of-stake decentralization comes from thousands of interoperable proof-of-stake blockchains, which will each offer their own unique token incentives, emission schedules, governance rules, target applications, etc. over the long term. You wouldn't want a monetary system where Elon Musk owns a large percentage of the money supply and a large vote in which economic activities were valid on that underlying network and a large claim on the fees and seniorage generated by that network. Too much power over one half of all transactions. On the other hand, you'd probably have no problem if you accumulated a similarly large percentage of a decentralized self-driving taxi service as it's merely a single Web3 application. Proof-of-work success paved the way for proof-of-stake research to be taken seriously. That doesn't mean proof-of-stake will overtake proof-of-work as a superior security model, nor does it mean proof-of-work will prove infallible. It means proof-of-work was first, and probably still best, for stateless money apps. 3.8. Proof-of-work protects minority rights. My former Coindesk colleague, Pete Rizzo, wrote a thought-provoking piece arguing that Bitcoin's social contract, proof-of-work mining scheme, and bias for user-activated soft forks make it the only crypto protocol to protect minority rights amidst the tyranny of the majority offered by hard forks. If you read up on the debate on Twitter, this may seem academic or semantic, but it's probably one of the most important things a new institutional entrant to crypto should seek to understand. We're five years removed from the only major contentious hard fork in Ethereum's history, and four years removed from Bitcoin's user-activated soft fork, which ended a multi-year scaling battle between exchanges, miners, users, and core developers. If you didn't live through that, it's tough to describe how risky these political risks can feel and how badly protocol politics could go wrong in future stalemates. For instance, do you think the most likely path to censorship is in soft fork code activated by a validator network whose incentives are tied to ongoing transaction processing or code that's hard forked and activated by the majority of the owner base whose incentives are tied to the capital they have accumulated? Bitcoin's bias for soft fork upgrades prioritizes user coercion over succession, keeping the family together sort of like a drag-along shareholder provision. You're ultimately getting pulled through to the new version of the protocol automatically once a large enough contingent of users signal their support of the fork. With Ethereum, on the other hand, it's more like an iOS upgrade. Yes, new hard forks are an opt-in for users, but only in the sense that they either submit to the upgrade or lose access to the primary network. This tyranny of the markets diminishes over time in an internet of blockchains that isn't dominated by Ethereum. Exit equals choice. I don't hold a strong opinion here since I'm invested in both Bitcoin and Ethereum, and I believe both will succeed. It's worth further study if you're new. This is also a dense section. I'm sorry for the 301 level interlude, but I didn't have time to simplify it after 800 hours of writing. Section 3.9, the Bitcoin Roadmap. It was a full four years since Bitcoin's last major upgrade in soft fork, and things were a bit less controversial this time around. Nearly the entire global Bitcoin mining apparatus signaled support for the Taproot upgrade this spring, and the upgrade went into full effect in November. As an aside, you could easily have tracked the full life cycle of the Taproot's BIPs, 
not to mention protocol updates for the 200 other crypto networks using our Intel product. For the layperson, Taproot makes Bitcoin's transactions cheaper. Its adoption of Schnorr signatures will enhance Bitcoin's privacy defaults and fungibility by making all transaction types, both simple payments, lightning channels, and multi-sig transactions look the same. And it could unlock the next phase of development in Bitcoin's lightning network, which may finally break out next year after years of me writing that it may finally break out next year. To be honest, Taproot doesn't seem like a big deal for privacy and Lightning, but less so for Bitcoin's smart contract future. We've been talking about sidechains since 2014, and they lost. As discussed earlier, Bitcoins could be wrapped as collateral on other platforms at scale, but that still won't make Bitcoin technically integral in new smart contract applications outside of payments. I've invested in a couple of companies leaning on Lightning, e.g. Collider, and its real-time settled derivatives exchange, and I'd like to see Jeremy Rubin's Sapio succeed, so I'm cautiously optimistic there will be winners here. But I've also been around long enough to curb my enthusiasm for Bitcoin applications outside of the payments and store of value settlement use cases. An independent alternative to Fedware is plenty big, thanks. Indeed, Bitcoin is at 300k on-chain Bitcoin settlements per day versus 800k daily Fedware settlements now. When you consider that hosted services frequently leverage single transactions to batch hundreds or even thousands of smaller transactions at a time, Bitcoin has already overtaken Fedware in throughput. Lightning could crank that pace up even further. Development on Bitcoin is like building a rocket while development on Ethereum has historically been more similar to building a Silicon Valley startup. The stakes are higher in Bitcoin, arguably. We'll get into this in Chapter 6. And you need rocket science-level security to build a reliable cryptographic alternative to Fedware. Ongoing updates and investments in Bitcoin's core code and communications infrastructure show what I'm talking about. V22O, released this fall, connected Bitcoin to the second anonymous communications protocol, the Invisible Internet Project, in order to complement the Tor integration and build resiliency to Bitcoin's secure messaging capabilities, making it even harder to de-anonymize users. Blockchain's efforts to shoot Bitcoin satellites into space sound quirky, but it also guarantees network access anywhere, society, and the internet breaks down. That doesn't make Bitcoin a bet on a Mad Max future. Instead, it's a life raft for refugees, current and future. Societal breakdowns don't happen everywhere at once. That's the point of having 190 plus countries and then adding a borderless value transfer layer. The work is important. 3.10, lightning strikes El Salvador. It seemed like Lightning had lost the payments foot trace to dollar-backed ERC-20s definitively. Lightning saw negligible growth in 2020 in channel capacity and nodes. Even as channel capacity exploded over the summer this year and sits 3x higher in Bitcoin terms year-to-date, it is just $200 million in total capacity, while ERC-20 stablecoins are set to clear $5 trillion of settlements on the year with no capacity limits. For all their progress, though... Neither ERC-20 stablecoins nor any other crypto asset accomplished what Bitcoin did this year as money. I'm talking, of course, about Bitcoin's acceptance as legal tender in El Salvador. It's amazing what happens to usage when you complete the closed-loop payment system without forcing a reconnection to a fiat reserve. We're still talking about small numbers in comparison to DeFi, but it's still legal 
actual currency we're talking about for 6 million people, not tokenized fiat currency that rides crypto rails and might be shut off at a moment's notice. I'm sure I'll be wrong about Lightning again, but I could see Lightning capacity getting to 30,000 Bitcoin of capacity by the end of 2022, another 10x next year, thanks to Twitter, Taproot, and President Ukel's aggressive Lightning rollout plans, potentially higher if other countries like Paraguay or Ukraine follow the Bitcoin game theory. I like Lightning. It's cool. I'm a sucker for strike demos. I'm a sucker for the news 2.7 million Salvadorians will get airdropped $30 in Bitcoin for downloading their new Chivo wallets, and which allows users to pay with Lightning on their phones. I'm sure it's all just propaganda. I'm a sucker for Twitter's Lightning tipping service going live to 186 million users. And I'm a sucker for believing Snowden might be onto something when he estimates countries with 650 million underbanked adults could make similar moves to El Salvador as a part of a post-USD monetary strategy. More than anything, I just want Bitcoin as a legal tender to work, and I don't want to be taxed 20% on my fucking coffee orders anymore. I'm getting worked up just thinking about how stupid our crypto policies are in the U.S. Good time, it's thing for my policy screed.